The views and opinions expressed by the guests of the Diplosport podcast do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of any agency of the United States government or any organization, public or private. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the latest edition of the Diplosport podcast. This is a long podcast today, but it's a good one because it is with the voice of amateur wrestling, not just in the U.S., but around the world, a great guy named Jason Bryant. Jason will be the in-house announcer for the 2017 NCAA Division I Wrestling National Championships, uh, finishing up a long postseason where he's announced other events, whether it was the Pac-12s or the NAIAs, and I think it was Division IIs he also covered. Uh, Jason's career highlight was being the English language announcer at the 2016 Rio Games, and we cover how he made that precipitous rise from being a high school journalist to reaching the highest levels of announcing his sport. And that also kind of led us into a discussion on Jason's entrepreneurial spirit, which I found fascinating, where he was able to really build an interesting and, and really nice career around his love of wrestling. And I think that that was definitely worth sharing, whether or not you're even a wrestling fan. And speaking of being a wrestling fan, let me just put in a plug here for Jason's guide to the NCAA National Championships. It's an online tool that I'll put a link to in the show notes. It's almost 200 pages covering virtually every match wrestled by any of the competitors in the NCAA National Championships. Fascinating resource for uh, analytical uh, or, or students of the sport. And not only is it just fun to follow along if you're following the NCAAs, but it's actually a tool that the ESPN on-air announcers use as a guide when uh, they're looking to be informed covering the matches over the course of the weekend. Spoken long enough. This is a long podcast. I hope that you're listening to it uh, in route to St. Louis. I think it's a perfect primer for a great weekend of wrestling. So with that, I'll turn things over to my conversation with a great guy, Jason Bryant. Uh, my name is Jason Bryant, and the easiest way to describe what I do for a living is I work in wrestling because I can't really put a title on what I do. Now, you can't say this, but uh, as as somebody that's been a lifelong fan of the sport and and I, you know, I can't believe it. You know, I'm, I'm in my late 30s now and I feel like I, I even love the sport more today than I did when when I was actually competing in high school. Um, in a lot of ways, you're especially for American fans, you're the voice of the sport. And I know you can't say that and I know you're too humble to say that, uh, but we'll get into to why I'm saying that in a second. As our listeners can tell right off the bat, you've got a great set of pipes, and you've been a sports announcer for for a lot longer than uh, than most other folks because you started in high school, right? Yeah, I started my freshman year in high school doing PA. At, started out with high school baseball, and then uh, by by the time I was a sophomore, I was I was more involved in, in other sports. I wasn't playing a whole lot. Um, I had a little bit of an issue with. Uh, you know, an issue that I mended fences with uh, quickly thereafter with uh, this place that I moved. I, I grew up in Newport News, Virginia. Most people might know that because uh, uh, Michael Vick, Alan Iverson, the, the you know athletes that have come from that that particular area. Well, I grew up there, and then I moved to this town called Pocosin, which is about uh, all of, as the crow flies, maybe maybe seven miles away from where I grew from Newport News, and it was a, a little bit of a, a culture shock. So uh, I. I I got cut from a traveling basketball team in like middle school, and I had this chip on my shoulder about small town politics. So I was going to use the, uh, the the school to kind of do what I wanted to do with it with, with sports versus actually uh, actively competing for them. And, and that you know that that's that's a little uh, arrogant to have as a thirteen year old. But uh, ultimately, uh, I started announcing 
baseball as a freshman, and then that that in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, what can I do now as a sophomore? I started out playing football, had some family issues at home that said, okay, well, what else can I do in the fall? Well, if uh, yeah, you know, you've lived in Virginia, you might know that the the seasons are aligned with uh, well, then the three classes. Well. In in the, in the mid '90s, single A and double A high schools, which were the mid size and the small schools, their girls basketball was played in the fall. Whereas typically, because their gym, they didn't have the uh, the larger gyms or the second gyms that a lot of the triple A high schools had. So I ended up in, leaving the football field to you know do the stats and announce for the girls basketball team, which was in the fall. Then when we get into the winter time, uh, I, I followed that with uh, we, the, the the boys basketball team had a PA announcer and they had a manager who did the stats. So I latched on to girls' volleyball. A lot of the same girls that were playing the uh, girls' basketball in the fall would play volleyball in the winter, and then back to baseball, and then the soccer coach picked me up. So uh, it pretty much snowballed from there in high school. By the by, the time I was a senior, I was announcing pretty much every every home sport, say football, and I did have a couple chances to do that. Uh, when Senor Fay, we called him Senor Fay, he was our Spanish teacher, uh, Tom Fay, he was available for the, for the home football games, and I did that. But uh, it really started 1994, it was the first time I announced a. I, I, I see a now batting for Pocosin High School. It was the first time I said it. So it's been uh, you know, coming up on twenty three years now. And what led you to that? Did you always have a great voice, or I, I mean, obviously there there must have been some sort of change around that time. Um, what what gave you uh, the the gumption to think that this was the right fit for for you? Well, it started I think in the when I really started getting an affinity for sports as a whole. It was probably the second or third grade. Uh, I was I was an angel. My older sister lived in Southern California, so uh, there was a Major League Baseball tie. It wasn't with the Dodgers; it was the Angels with the Angels, and I was an Angels fan. And it was the you know really remember watching the ALCS in '86. And people who are are Mets fans know that, and people who are Boston fans know that. But a lot of people forget the fact that the Angels held the three-one lead in that series against the Red Sox to go to the World Series that year. Donnie Moore blew a save. Uh, and, and that was the year I really fell in love with with sports, and it was there. It was them, and it was my my stepbrother's uncle was a linebackers coach for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So uh, Frank Emanuel, he, he actually did wrestle in high school, believe it or not. Uh, that's that's a that's a tangential tangential of a tangential story. But got into sports and stuck in third grade, and really I think it was the second grade, eh, second grade thereabouts. And then I remember making ten ten cent bets and nickel bets with people because I really didn't like the Washington Redskins. So <laughs> I was rooting against them. And uh, the year that the that, that you know the Broncos took a 10-0 lead, and that first long bomb from Elway to Ricky Natiel, and it was like, and then Doug Williams went nuts and. It just sports really became a big part of who who I who I was as uh, you know as a person. I was playing basketball out with my friends, and we were playing every every different pickup game you could think of. Uh, we were just, just generally sports was what we you know a lot of a lot of boys in the neighborhood. Uh, some of them were, were went on to be very good basketball players in, in high school and college. But uh, it just it's something called me, and I started watching Sports Center a lot. And in, this was in an era where the first thing on in ESPN wasn't 20. It was, it was an all-sports network. But even the beginning of the day, they had like Business Weekly. They had like a business show about the stock market or something before SportsCenter came on. And I'm like, all right, come on. Let's get to the highlights. I was an Orlando Magic basketball fan. And during their expansion years, you got about 15 seconds of highlights per show. So I would always eagerly await to see my favorite team's highlights because we wouldn't see them on TV. And just I was drawn to sports and then – it's like, you know, I had this idea I wanted to be a meteorologist when I was like a kid because I liked watching the Weather Channel. And then I discovered sports radio, and you, you couple 
1310, the AM sports, all sports station back home with Tony Mercurio with a, a growing love for stats and sports. And, you know, the fact that I want to be a sports broadcaster just seemed to be, uh, you know, a natural fit. I, I remember saying to my principal when I was in the fifth grade that I wanted to be a sportscaster. And I, I don't think, you know, I went to my 10-year reunion, you know, 10 years ago for high school, and people were like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm a sports writer. Nobody's surprised. <laughs> so uh, I knew at an early age that I wanted to be in sports broadcasting. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been kind of towing that line between broadcasting and PA announcing. Uh, they're not, they're related, but they're really not similar. So, it's, uh, you know, I, I've known since, you know, probably I was 10 years old, this is what I wanted to do. Not exactly the way I, I designed it, but, uh, and actually you'll, you'll probably hear me explain that with Adam Amin, who I had on the Short Time Wrestling Podcast, which will be released by the time your listeners hear this. But, uh, you know, it's 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 kind of weird how things just turn out where we're at right now. Yeah, and I heard you just rattle off uh, the, the Angels, the the Bucks, the and and the Magic. Do you have? You know, it might seem intuitive that wrestling's your favorite sport, but but a is wrestling your favorite sport? And then you know why or why not? And then you know how how did you get on on this trajectory to to ride wrestling uh, after all? Uh, wrestling is my favorite sport. It's it's one of those things where. Uh, what, what, what was created as a hobby, and that was my website with Matt Talk Online in its infancy in, uh, in 1997 when I started it out of my dorm room as a freshman at Old Dominion University. It, you know, it became, it grew into a passion and, and it grew into just something that I just, I loved. I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was, but it just drew me in. But overall sports, I mean, I was, I was a huge NBA fan in the mid 90s. I was, I'm still a very, very active baseball fan, and oh, even though as an Angels fan, um, there's some parts of the season where you just kind of check out. Like with, with, with being a Bucks fan in football, you checked out usually week five because you're zero <laughs> five. Uh, this year, I actually had a chance to, to keep up with the Bucks all year long. But um, I, I'd say Major League Baseball is one of those things that um, when you know it's obviously everybody watches the playoffs. So I thought the Cubs Indians, uh, you know, that narrative this year was was fantastic. As a sports fan, I, you know, I worked at a newspaper for eight years, so I, I enjoy drama and headlines and, and things that sell papers, so to speak. So, um, But wrestling, you know, 90% of my conversations involve wrestling. My friends are wrestling people. I do have friends that aren't wrestling people, but even they they they're, they follow it a little bit just because they've, they've seen my travels. And my wife sat down with me at dinner today, and she's like, tell me something interesting in your day that didn't involve wrestling. And, you know, it's because I have to think about those type of things. But, yeah, wrestling is by far my favorite sport. And um, my favorite sport actively to play is you know, I was a beer league softball player for a while. I haven't been in a league in a while. I, I really enjoy um, the game. I guess that was probably my best sport as an athlete was baseball. So, uh, I'm not, no, if you hear Shane Sparks talk about baseball, his knowledge about the players and the history dwarfs mine. I mean, I, you know, he's got the stances down and, you know, he'll remember a stat from, from the situation with the Brewers and the Braves. You know, it's, you know, I'm not like that anymore. Uh, but I, there was a time in my teens I could rattle off basically everything you could think of. Now you uh, you started covering wrestling in high school uh, and then, uh, then, through at ODU, you went to Old Dominion uh, down there. Um, and when did you realize that this, this was something that that w- was worth pursuing as a career? That that you could, you ended up working at the the Daily Press down in what is it like the Tidewater area uh, as, as a newspaper man? Yeah, there are there are two major papers that serve the Hampton Roads region. Uh, basically, 
it's like two metro areas within a larger metro area. The Hampton-Newport News side, commonly referred to as the peninsula, with uh, York County, Williamsburg, Pocosin, where I, I claim is my hometown, uh, all the way up to the outskirts of Richmond, New Kent County. Whereas on the south side, which is anything south of the Hanford Bridge Tunnel, that's Norfolk, Virginia Beach, Portsmouth, uh, commonly referred to as Southampton Roads in a lot of places. So uh, the Daily Press was, uh, was, was one paper. They were owned by the, the Chicago Tribune, and uh, Landmark Communications owned the, the Virginian Pilot, which is still uh, a very good paper. They're both very good papers. Both have undergone some downsizing in recent years. Sure. But uh, uh, the newspaper thing actually kind of came through wrestling. But wrestling, really, it piqued my interest. And it was one of those things that it was we were good. That's what really helped. Because if, if, if Pocosin High School had no tradition in wrestling, I probably wouldn't have been infected by it like I was. Um, recently, uh, one of my former teammates, uh, Jared Hurd, had been posting a lot of stuff on Facebook. And one of them was the newspaper article from my sophomore year in high school when, when Pocosin beat McEachern, Georgia. They were ranked 18th in the country in the first year. This would have been January 95 in the first ever uh, bracketed tournament, the National High School Division. And before that, it had been... A number of uh, a number of single duels and triple duels and things like that in Hampton Coliseum for the Virginia duels and that just kind of that was the second duel meet I had ever seen. The previous one was oh, that Wednesday night. Uh, you know, it was January. It was cold. My friend Terry came to pick me up. Uh, he's an older guy who had been who grown up around uh, you know the city and knew how 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 active the wrestling program was. And you know, when when you have a team that's winning. And you're still kind of that underdog that likes to win. I mean, we're a double-A high school beating an 18th-ranked team in the country. Uh, you know, I had, that really had no business being there. And that was something that really just kind of sold me on wrestling. I didn't think it would be an optional career. It wouldn't be a career path probably until uh, probably 10 years after that because it really wasn't. Because, uh, you know, I take that to – I start announcing wrestling. And then uh, Greg Martin, who was one of my mentors on the microphone, another precocious guy, worked in local radio, and Henry Ayer, who was a, a local businessman – I uh, bought my my second car from him at Pico, at, at Pomoco, and he's been the GM there. Been in, he's been he's the PA announcer now for Pocosin High Football. Uh, just a guy that they did radio brought me in. I was a junior in high school doing uh, doing a you know doing some radio stuff with high school football. We did that my senior year and then into my my first year in college. So um, it was about that time that the the internet started pop popping up, and sure. I'm like, okay, I didn't have I didn't have access to the internet when I was in high school except for the library. And we would have to go sign in, and you'd have to have an expressed written reason from uh, your teacher. And this is one reason I actually used my wrestling coach, Billy Ruff. I would just go in and say, I'm researching the website for the wrestling team, because we were going to have a parent build a wrestling website. And I was looking at other websites. I was searching wrestling uh, my senior year in high school on the web in the library. And I'm trying to figure, you know, searching this stuff out. And I'm like, oh, what's this? And I, the Intermat was up there back in the day. Yep. Matt.com was was actually it was late. And the thing is, domain names really didn't even exist back then. Uh, I remember, it, you know, I wasn't supposed to log into to ESPN's chat, but it was like ESPN.SportZone.SomethingElse.com slash chat. And it was like, all right, you know, and, you know, it was very rudimentary HTML. And I just remember looking at the, the wrestling results and I was like, oh, man, Denby High School's got a web page, which was one of the schools in the area. I was like, we got to get one. So I, I learned... uh saw what other schools had on their sites and, you know, report back. But I'd spent a lot more time looking at some of those wrestling sites than I, than I was really allowed to do. But, um, you know, going to college, starting a site from the radio show. I mean, there's so many different ways, but 
I, I guess it was 2004 when the NWCA approached me to do some freelance work, and that's really when I realized that, okay, uh, everything I've been doing for the last you know six, seven years is uh, people started to notice. Is that what brought you out to Minnesota? Uh, that's what brought me to Pennsylvania at first. Um, and I'd working at the newspaper and I had actually gotten that job, the daily press, because I knew the guy who was covering high school wrestling at the daily press was a guy by Coltsclaw. He still works there. He's now in news, but he came through the line at, uh, I was working at a blimpy subs. And let me tell you this, uh, I was on the corner of Coliseum drive and, and Mercury Boulevard in Hampton, Virginia. It used to be a shell station or a BP in a shell station. And there was a Blimpy subs in it. Folks in the Northeast will will rave about Blimpy. Uh, it was new to us, and I was I was a sixteen year a little overweight sixteen year old kid working in a Blimpy sub shop. Not greatest for the self esteem. Let me tell you that. But uh, Mike Holtzell comes through the line one day, and I'd seen Mike at events, and we'd known each other because I was the stats guy. He'd co- they'd cover Pocosin game. He'd always know who to ask for stuff. And I looked up to Mike Holtzell, and I gave him some wrestling information. And I asked about internships because, you know, I'm in high school. I didn't know how internships work. I didn't realize it was a college credit type of thing. So, uh, you know, he says, oh, I don't know of anything right now. But then I call him back a week later because the wrestling info I told him had changed. And he said, hey, you know, there's openings for part-time clerks. And I was down there that afternoon. Um, I, my, my tenure at Blimpy lasted uh, about another day or so after that. But uh, I got called on my 17th birthday. Uh, by a member of the woman's name, Felicia Mason. She still works there. She, you know, she goes, "Hey, would you kind of like to come work at the Daily Press?" I said, "Absolutely." So, I uh, did that from nineteen August of ninety six to you know uh, the time I left in November, Thanksgiving of two thousand four. So I had a, a little gap in between, but uh, that was that was really where it went. And I was building Matt Talk online at the time and doing a lot of Virginia rankings and got the rankings into the paper. So I was having. You know, they, they gave me the high school wrestling beat, and even though I was a, a phone snagger, for lack of a better term, started designing pages, work, laying out the baseball page. So my life was heavy sports, still heavy wrestling, and it, it was an ongoing joke that uh, there'd always be some type of wrestling reference. Like my boss, Mario Orlikoff, would mention something about the Redskins and Prince every night. Well, every time I was on the desk, I'd have to mention something about wrestling, and it'd be like, there it is, there it is. But uh, when, when, when the NWCA approached me in 2004, to freelance for them, uh, I was still working full-time in the paper. I said, sure. And then I left the paper because I was unhappy with the situation and being pulled off of wrestling. I had you know, scheduled the Ironman and the Beast, and my schedule was supposed to be set. And then I went from having eight years in to being the low man on the totem pole, not having consecutive days off. I really wasn't living right at that time. I spent a lot of time in, in, in pubs after work and even joined an after-hours bar, if you can imagine that. <laughs> and... Oh, got out of that. Then the NWCA approached me after a year and said, hey, you know, uh, we've bought the website from Tom Owens. He's staying on this year, but uh, we, we'd be interested in, you know, you taking this position. I went up and visited in in July and, or in June and then uh, basically accepted July, moved up first to September. And, you know, it was really kind of quick. It was going from freelancing for him and still working on my own site, announcing tournaments and, you know, Basically, I was, I was kind of slumming. I was living with my dad, you know, a year after I graduated from college. And it was like, okay, what do I do with my life? I'm 25 years old, and then here comes this wrestling opportunity to bring me to Pennsylvania to work with uh, Mike Moyer and Pat Tossey and, and then Peanut Boyer, who was a longtime coach at James Madison, to, to work with the NWCA. And I had worked with them as an announcer at certain events. The, the You know, they had a National High School Open. They had the Scholastic Duels, which is still a tremendous event. And, uh, you know, I guess I built enough of a rapport with them that uh, they, they they gave this uh, loud-mouthed, uh, arrogant, brash 27-year-old a chance. 
Yeah, and uh, just to reset a little bit, there are some really you've done some wonderful interviews throughout the past couple of years uh, in, that I, I had a chance to to listen to ahead of our conversation tonight, and uh, I'll put links to your talk with the Real Brian Show, the Podcast Engineering Show, uh, and Podcast Junkies, which uh, which you go even further in depth in, into your background, and I think it's fascinating. Just for uh, even if you're not a wrestling fan, it's great for capturing the entrepreneurial spirit that you bring to 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 your life uh to say nothing of the sport and then also uh you're really good at shaming me for my audio uh really on that podcast engineering show i I couldn't believe some of the things and the equipment that you were talking about meanwhile half my interviews you hear my kids crying in the background and stuff like that so uh but but there it just showed me i have a lot to learn and, and to continue to aspire to one thing I love about those three shows you mentioned, they're podcasters doing shows with other podcasters. So, you know, we get to go a little, a little in the weeds and stuff. And, uh, you know, Podcast Junkies, that's one. Harry Duran, I really enjoyed that interview. And he had the ability to pull some things out of it. I didn't think we were going to go down certain rabbit holes. So, uh, you know, I had alluded to living in a dark place for a little bit. And, you know, it's not like crazy dark or anything. It's not like I'm, I'm in a crack house or anything like that. But, you know, it's uh, there's, there's some things that, you know, I think everybody after college or in college has some some sketchiness that they're trying to uh, sort themselves out of, but uh, I really enjoy doing those shows and, and a lot with the podcasting space is, you know, we've got uh, almost over 40 podcasts. I mean, 19 of them are on my network, but uh, there, there are 40 something shows that have something to do with wrestling. And, and I, I'd like to, I'm happy with the fact that I've, I've had dialogue with most of those shows in, in helping them one way or another, whether it's getting the right microphone, whether it's finding the right hosting package, because Lord knows I hate SoundCloud. No offense to you, but I just <laughs> hate SoundCloud. <laughs> Sorry, Jason. Uh, I've, got, I've got a couple of great companies that I've, I've been using with Spreaker and Libsyn. So, I mean, I, I get into the tech weeds quite a bit. And, um, that's probably my second biggest passion, really, is not just wrestling, but it's podcasting, because the, you know, gives somebody who doesn't have a regular gig on television or radio, an opportunity to, to continue to focus on that type of stuff. It's like basically uh, I'm building a studio in my house right now, and that thing is going to be it's going to be like I always wanted. I always wanted a studio in a sports bar, a big giant sports bar with a boxing ring dance floor and its own indoor softball field where teams are trying to get in, and I would have this booth that was going to be my nationally syndicated radio show from right inside that sports bar. But uh, I guess I have to settle for my speakeasy. <laughs> and, and that's awesome. And, and one thing I did notice, uh, the website is Matt Talk Online, uh, and and it's, it's, you know, a wrestling treasure trove. And, and one of the things, you just, you clearly, you're, you're a subscriber to the school of, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And, you, you know, you're not somebody with sharp elbows. You, you, even you by talking to me tonight at uh, 8.30, my time, 7.30, your time just shows that you just care about taking care of other people that that want to grow their own projects and i think that speaks a lot about you and your character i appreciate it i mean it's it's one of these things where i mean i've and you know what i think people that that follow wrestling that might listen to this show that they they've seen they've seen me get snippy on twitter or on on the message boards especially on the mat.com uh (laughs) even prior to when I worked at USA Wrestling, I, I'd have no problem calling somebody out for being a complete idiot or, or saying something insensitively and, and just being a general DB about things. And, you know, some, I, I've kind of called that a little bit. I mean, my wife will look at me and look over, and I'll have this look on my face, and she's like, what are you responding to? I mean, she knows. She, I mean, she's kept me from saying some really, like, abrasive stuff. And let's be honest, I don't, I'm not, I, don't, I don't think I'm a mean-spirited person. Sometimes, though, you just, sometimes you just need to put somebody on blast, and I, I've gotten a lot more tactful 
with how I do that. Um, sometimes there's a w- little bit of a, a witty sarcasm. Sometimes it's outright smirk. But I mean, I'm not a mean spirited person, and and you know, there's there's people I've had, I've gotten into some pretty spirited disagreements with on the message boards and whatnot that, you know, uh, when I see him in Farner or something, we sit down and have a beer, it's cool. I mean, I don't like to hold any grudges. There's people that, and thank goodness for the ignore button on uh, on forums and, and, and the mute button and the block button on Twitter because, uh, you know, they, they can they can, they can can drag in down to a dark place really quickly, especially if you've got, I don't think I have a quick temper, but it some these pe- certain people know how to push my buttons the right way. <laughs> You know, I've spent a lot, a lot of time, 15 years on message boards. I think people have figured out the way to get me to, to really uh, to, to really react. So I'm, I'm trying to do better at that, even though, I mean, I'm 37 years old. I still sometimes act like a kid, though. I get, I, I'm aware of that. Uh, speaking of USA Wrestling and the, the national governing body of our sport, uh, you ended up working for them uh, after the National Wrestling Coaches Association. Uh, how did you end up in Colorado Springs? Well, that's the uh, that's where the Minnesota buffer comes in okay. because when I I was working with the NWCA and I really love you know and I'll be honest with you it, uh, my ego was a little bit out of control when I was with <laughs> Intermat and it's because I felt like I was wrestling I felt it, it was it was I had a platform that gave me uh, you know for lack of a better term it gave me power in this sport. And I don't know if if I look back on it in hindsight, there's certain things that we could have done a little differently in terms of how I used that responsibility. You know, it's Spider-Man, you know, with great, great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> but the, you look at the things I did that made an impact. You know, I, I saved Wagner's program with a column twice. Uh, I, I, I put the University of Oregon on blast like it had never been put on blast before from the wrestling community with actual facts and going after the AD who didn't have a degree, who was making academic. I mean, I, I stuck the facts on things. When I approached Title IX, I, I, I stuck with the facts. I didn't I didn't dig into the mud and throw it in somebody's face and be like, yeah, now it's on. I, I, I always tried to stay with facts and research, but when I was putting together Intermat and rebuilding it, because it was the tops at one time, and then the traffic sank, and then when I brought it back and basically resurrected it to where, where everybody went for news, where everybody went for every school, where everybody went for every breaking, re- I broke almost every major recruiting's commitment, recruits commitment for a three-year period, and that was by myself. I had I did have Pat Tossi at the NWC did provide me a lot of the resources I needed. And we had, I had some good stringers that helped me out with information. Uh, you know, basically it's that guru in every state I made sure I connected with, but I really thought it was hot shit coming out of there, to be honest with you. And, um, Jay Robinson approached me with this thing called wrestling 411, uh, knowing that, uh, you know, his, his mantra then was, you know, television validates everything. And it was enticing because it was, Ooh, it was kind of like a sports center for wrestling. And that was the idea. And him and Wade Chalice uh, conferenced me in on a call one day. I just bought a house in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I mean, I want to say it was it was May of 2009. I bought the house in December of 08. And I'm still, you know, I'm still figuring out the joys of homeownership with broken pipes and uh, oh, I don't know, trash bins that are staying out too long and <laughs> things yeah, that are cracking. Lancaster's uh, the heart of Pennsylvania Dutch country too, huh? Great place to live too. I lived I lived about a block from Clipper Magazine Stadium, which is the minor league baseball. St- well, it's an independent league, so uh-huh. I got to see a whole lot of baseball for five bucks. I mean, this place was so close that between innings, I could run out. Uh, I, I was a smoker then, so I could go out, have a cigarette, run to my house, slam a beer, and come back. You know, again, this was not the 
this was not the, the, the greatest of, of my life choices at the time, but that's how close I was. I wouldn't miss a pitch. But living in Lancaster was great. And when, you know, you get Wade Chalice and Jay Robinson on the phone, basically, you know, talking you up and doing everything, you know, telling you, you're, gonna, you're, you're, you're the guy we want. And, you know, it was, it was, it kind of, it kind of spoke to my ego a little bit. And I, I decided to, you know, to make a move. Um, I didn't necessarily want to leave Pennsylvania. Uh, it might, and you know, in hindsight, it probably was a smart decision for me, uh, personally, because there was, I was, you know, uh, you, you, you live by yourself and you've only got wrestling and you've got a really cool bar right down the street. You know, I mean, <laughs> you're not going to make again, the best choices. So, uh, getting out of Pennsylvania was 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 a step that I, I, I took a leap and we moved. It was during the Olympics. Doug Schwab was wrestling the day I moved out. I spent my 29th birthday in West Lafayette, Indiana, with a U-Haul. Um, the birthday cake was a was a shake from Steak and Shake, and then um, pulled into Minnesota. Was moving on my birthday, and then uh, a year later, you know, Kyle Klingman moved up from from Iowa. He was working at the uh, what was then the Dan Gable International Wrestling Institute Museum, and it was Kyle and I were gonna head up this effort. We were going to do radio. We were going to do TV. We were going to do internet. We were going to kind of create a new network of wrestling. And, you know, some, some, some people with the project left about a month after we got there. And then, uh, about a year after the project was done, I mean, the, the money ran out and we were kind of stuck here in Minnesota. So Kyle, uh, you know, fortunately had an option to go back to the museum where he was at. And thankfully at the time I'd met my now wife, Abby, and, uh, you know, I married up, to say, to say the least. I didn't know it at the time. And, you know, this is a woman who flew me to South Africa for my 30th birthday. So, oh, wow. you know, your 29th birthday, it's a steak and shake. My 30th birthday, I'm on a safari in South Africa. So I think I did pretty well there. But there goes the Minnesota. That was one year. Met my wife. And then USA Wrestling created a position for me out of, uh, you know, their, their push with social media. It was the, I think the title was coordinator of grassroots and social media marketing. Mm -hmm. Not a single thing in there said anything about broadcasting, but, um, one of my biggest jobs was to, was to kickstart the web streaming that we were doing at USA wrestling. So that, that bridges the gap between, uh, Pennsylvania and Colorado with the Minnesota in between. That kind of also explained how I ended up back here, but uh, yeah, USA wrestling, uh, you know, they created that position and I accepted in December of, uh, of 2009 so it was you know about a year after i'd moved to a year and a half after i moved to minnesota i was i was on the move again to colorado springs um and i, I don't know the answer to this before i ask you but did, did you work directly for j-rob and, and if so um what kind of leader was he and, and was there anything that you you took away uh that you still keep with you from from working for him while you were in minnesota jay robinson is a master of leverage he, and when I say leverage in business, he knows how to leverage other people's time better than anyone I have ever met in my life. He's always got a lot of people willing to work for him, a lot of people working long hours. And now I didn't work, I didn't see Jay day to day. Now Jay owned the company, um, which was then called the parent company was called Media Sports Productions. And we had some financial backers involved and, uh, there, there was some things. And we, you know, basically he kind of gave it to me and Kyle and said, you know, get it done. And he'd come in and he'd have some, some things about how to fundraise. And, uh, you know, he was you know, actively coaching at the time. And you know, he was working on his angles. And, and what I really admire about Jay is, you know, people you like to use the term old school. And they throw it around kind of like, like oh, that, it's an excuse for everything, especially with, you know, how, how what's viewed on how he treated this, the, the, the drug issue at the University of Minnesota recently. But 
Jay has a, a, a set of rules that he lives by, and he really doesn't deviate from them too often. And then you factor that with the leopard. This guy knows how to get an advantage on things and an advantage on people. And it's not necessarily a negative thing when I say he has an advantage on things. He just, you know, people look at him and they're, they're either immediately impressed with him or they're afraid of him. And usually when you're impressed with somebody or afraid of somebody, you're going to do what they want you to do anyway, right? Interesting point. So, yeah, he is. He just commands respect. And, you know, I, my, my interactions with Jay Robinson were, prior to working for him for that year, were really, really limited. And I remember a conversation him and I were having, and uh, we were at the Junior College Championships in Rochester. And, and there's there's a place where they have it at, at the Rochester Community and Technical College. It's the same building they hold the Clash, the big national high school tournament, and the Minnesota Christmas tournament. And I'm up there, and, you know, Jay and Joe Russell, and there's junior college coaches around. The only reason I remember the story is because Mike Malinconico from Flow Wrestling actually had, had cited this this story, this uh this conversation on a previous episode of their Malicious Intent show, and it jogged my memory, it jogged it, jogged it, whatever. Did something in my memory, and I remember that. And Jay tell, is telling me a story, and the end of the story ends up with him calling me a bigot. And it's not him calling me a bigot, it's him explaining my answer, and it, it basically, it, it kind of said, ooh, okay, this guy has a way of thinking that's different than anybody else that you run into. And I don't know if it's his Army Ranger training, but I have a lot of respect for Jay Robinson. Um, I'd have to think of it, you know, the way he handled that 25, 30 years ago probably would have been acceptable. But uh, this day and age, with, with the stream as litigious as we are, and if you're unfamiliar with the story, um, I mean, I, we, we don't necessarily need to rehash that. There's Just Google it, yep. and you'll pretty much see what I'm talking about. But uh, I, I hold Jay in high respect. Um, it's kind of hard for me to second-guess a guy that's, that's had that much life experience and has been a mentor to so many hundreds and hundreds of individuals, and a lot of those individuals weren't always salt of the earth people. I mean, he probably had to change a lot of lives, and I believe he has. And, uh, and Jay Robinson, I, I personally find a, a fascinating American. Uh, as, as Jason mentioned, he's an Army Ranger. He's an Olympian on, on our Greco team. I guess what was it, nineteen eighty? Uh, and he was assistant coach for Dan Gable in Iowa, uh, and then up until earlier this year, or earlier this season, he was the head coach at, at Minnesota. I'll put a link to to the saga leading up to his uh, his departure from the Golden Gophers in the show notes here. Um, back to Colorado Springs. Uh, you're out there. Uh, you know, just looking at your LinkedIn page, you you grew uh, their social media presence. Uh, you know, and it, it's not like it was. You were out there in like 1998. You were out there in in the late 2000s. Um, you you grew it from 6,500 to to what 300,000 uh, followers. Yeah, it was right around 300,000 when I left, and I left uh, right around thanks October of 2012. And when I had started it, well, when I got there in my first day on the job, uh, Meredith Wilson, who was, uh, who is the IT director there, had had put a call, put a call in because there were a lot of USA Wrestling groups and unofficial pages, and you know, getting the URL and Facebook is kind of an important thing. And so I did get a 6,500 person jump start because they, basically they had merged all these existing groups into one, and then that was when pages were really launching. So I started hitting. You know, most of my friends on Facebook at the time, I think I had 2,500 friends at the time, and we're, we're wrestling people. So a lot of that, that growth, uh, that was all organic, too. I only bought a Facebook ad for one week just to see what it was. But all that growth was, a lot of it was organic, and a lot of it started with my own friends list. And, you know, to see it hit 100,000, and then to see it hit 200,000, and 250, and I'm like, 
yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not having that type of success with the Mad Talk Online Facebook presence because some of that USA Wrestling, you see USA Wrestling, okay, I'm going to do that. You know, it's like, oh, Mad Talk Online, oh, okay, whatever. But, you know, having a brand like USA Wrestling really made growing that uh, really easy. We, we had a lot of social media, I did a lot, a lot of mistakes, too. I learned that you don't um, update dual meets live on Facebook with wall posts. That pisses everybody off. And then I was like, okay, you do that on Twitter. And then I learned how to embed the Twitter. And huh. uh, really, we really started using Twitter more for match updates and to the point where I remember one time I'm at the Division Three Nationals. Craig Sesker is at the Big Tens, and we were tweeting so much, we got sent into Twitter Twitter jail for an hour. And it's like, ah, people are, you know, <laughs> you learn these things. But, yeah, our social media presence really grew. And I know Richard Immel, who uh, who's t- who replaced me in that position when I left, it, did, did another job, a fantastic job in, in taking that to the next level. Because Richard is what Richard had in uh but he, he lacked an experience getting with that position he totally had in in a photoshop ability because some of the graphics that he's created for social media i've just I, I mean i could probably could have done it but he he just he has that 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 flair with with the photoshop and things like that so he's definitely got me beat on the social media graphics game and he's really taken that torch and kept running with it so uh, i'm glad they made that higher but uh yeah we started with 6500 i left it was just around 300,000. so and an organic in a little over two two and a half years. Now, uh, getting to to the bread and butter, the international aspect of things. Uh, two thousand twelve marked the the London Games. Uh, y- you ended up going to to London to cover them. Was, was that under the USA Wrestling flag? Yes, it was. I was working with. Uh, well, in that case, we had uh, the International Federations got two, and then I got credentialed under USA Wrestler, which is our magazine. So, uh, you know, there's there's ways to get credentials that. You know, to get an extra staffer there and things like that. But yeah, I was part of the the media team. I was doing a lot of the social media, doing uh, you know that was back when uh, putting I was putting together audio clips. Basically, I was creating a podcast while I wasn't creating a podcast. Like if I I just put an RSS feed up, you could have gotten so much stuff from the Olympics. But I think it wouldn't actually allowed. But yeah, London was was an eye opener. Um, you know, I, I left there. I had a at that point a two month old daughter. And you know my you know, my wife back in Colorado, but yeah, the the London Olympics was uh, it was awesome because London is an amazing place. It really it's the second time I had been there. I had been there shortly uh, for a couple hours on a layover when I was coming back from that trip from South Africa. And uh, London, it wasn't the first time I'd ever left the country, but it was all it was the first time I left the country where it was predominantly English speaking. So uh, we didn't really struggle. The transportation system there is fantastic. Um, you know, they have apps for the underground, the tube, whatever you want to call it. Getting, navigating London is, is no problem at all. So it's, uh, I, I couldn't have been more thankful for a, a better location for my first Olympic Games. I mean, uh, I, I wasn't even going to attempt to go to Beijing. I didn't have the, the finances or, or the backing really in that particular time, but uh, it, it was the right place, the right time for me to, to really get that first Olympic experience. A two-part question here. Um, what did the, your experience in London mean for you professionally as a wrestling journalist? Um, it, it, that'd be the first part. And then maybe kind of dovetail that into uh, what did you learn about the sport at the international level? You, you know, you obviously had been covering it for, for you know, I guess the two decades or almost two decades at that point, but seeing it firsthand and seeing the interplay uh, among the different federations. And, and I guess at that point it was still Fila. Um, w- were there any takeaways that you took uh, fr- from that, that, uh, that you still carry with you today? Well, first part of it, prof- 
professionally, I think that's a line item on everybody's resume as a sports writer or broadcaster or journalist that, you know, covered, you know, covered Olympics. And, you know, I've got my, my, my Olympic credential, both of them. I've got them on my wall prominently displayed because that is not, I mean, there are thousands of journalists that have that opportunity, but guess what? There are thousands of more that will never get that opportunity. And I've had the opportunity to cover it as a journalist and to cover it as a PA announcer or not even cover it, but I was there as the PA announcer. But what it does professionally is it puts you in the in the radar of the the USOC, speaking specifically as an American member of the media. So when I apply for my credential in Rio, now I applied for a media credential in Rio because I did not know what my role was going to be. I was then after I'd left USA Wrestling, I had uh, jumped to the open mat, which was working on buying amateur wrestling news. I, I got caught in the middle, and by the time the credentialing application deadline, which is about a year and a half ahead. So if you don't apply for the credentials for Rio like the month before, you're, you're applying a year and a half ahead. So I had just created Mad Talk Online. Well, when your name is already in the system, even though your outlet might be a month or two old or a couple months old at this time when I applied, I got granted a media credential for Rio with, you know, basically because of my my standing, I'd been previously credentialed as a journalist at the Olympics, and professionally, you're going to be in that system. Now, this year, when I had to give that credential back because I was getting a, a, a basically a working credential, they said, "Don't you're still in our good graces with this system." Mm-hmm. So, professionally, when you get credentialed, and you do, I mean, just one thing, you know, don't don't lose that credential, don't don't piss them off, basically, <laughs> and you get that credential professionally, you know that you're you're probably going to get credentialed each time out because they only credential a certain amount of journalists per sport per country. Mm-hmm. So I'm in that very, very select pool right now. And that's something that, you know, if say if I don't get the PA gig in Tokyo and trust me, I'm, I'm already starting to work on it, but if I don't get it, I know that I'm still going to have an opportunity to be there. Mm-hmm. So professionally, that's what it does. That when it comes to the, uh, the diplomacy issue or the, the relationships with the countries, I think you'd have to really go back to my first trip internationally. Okay. Uh, to really, for me to get that, unless I didn't discover this in London, I, I, I took my vacation in 2007 to go to Baku, Azerbaijan. Of the course. First time I'd ever left the country. Where, where else and, would you go on vacation? Yeah, I mean, Hotel Absheron. <laughs> well, Steve Silver was the team leader at that time for men's freestyle, and uh, he had talked to me at the Lone Star Duels earlier that year. Hey, are you going to go to go to the Worlds? I'm like, ah, I don't have the money. He's like, well, hey, yeah, come over with me. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of your trip. And I'm like, Really? Wow. <laughs> and I think of it and a couple months later I'm like, Hey Steve, is that offer still and he's like, Yeah, man. I'm like, All right. So I called called Paul and said, uh, hey, um, Steve wants to take care of my flight over there and you know, in the the NWCA, that was my vacation. I mean, I ended up covering it for Intermat out there because I'm not just gonna sit there and do nothing. Uh, but you know, that was my first interaction with international athletes and I'm getting off the off the plane, and these are people, I knew Pete Isaias, I mean, it's not like we were super tight, but I, I knew Pete, and, you know, I get off the plane, who's one of the first people I see on our bus to the to, to the hotel, Matt Gentry, who, who wrestled at Stanford, but he was there with Team Canada. You know, I'm in, I'm in the airport in Frankfurt with, uh, you know, Chris, who was the, the team leader for Canada, and Surrender, his, he's the trainer, I still talk to him every year when I see him, it's like, hey man, that's a trip to Baku, so this is a wrestling trip, to a place 90% of, I think, Americans can't even spell, let alone locate on the map. It was it was an opportunity for me to, 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 to understand what the locals like and how the merge of cultures where it was, uh, you know, a Soviet-era type of building with, uh, uh, you know, with an, you know an, uh, an Arabic influence. And it was just like, it was so cool. 
and you know the Caspian Sea's right there. You're seeing oil rigs. So, and then we get into the the, the wrestling part of it, where you're starting to see the politics at play. Mm-hmm. And it was strange thing in Greco. There was a guy from Finland wrestling an Armenian in in, in Greco in one of the the Repishog matches, and. The there was thousands of people in this place. I think they let everybody in. I think tickets were free, but they had like military guards in the front row. But the the Finn is wrestling the guy from Armenia, and the Azerbaijan fans are cheering for the Finland guy. They're like Finland, Finland. And I'm like, what is going on here? And then I'm learning about the 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 issue over over land. And you know, there's 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 been a long going border war between those two countries, and it was really interesting. And then uh, you know, then then you start to understand. You hear the stories about Mar- Rafi Martinetti, and and you know the the corruption, the alleged corruption that existed within Fila, and you're seeing calls. You know, Harry Lester threw a guy from Azerbaijan on his head in the semis, and they stopped it because for some they they stopped it because for some reason uh, you know they said, oh, his head went out of bounds. Like, no, it didn't. I mean, it was Fareed Mansarov who we threw on his head, a guy from Azerbaijan. You're not throwing a world champion on his head in his home country and expecting to get the call. So I learned quickly uh, how, how that is, and I see how certain athletes get uh, get screwed. You know, Kerry Colat, it's well documented on what happened to him. Lester got hosed twice in his career, so and I saw them both times. So it was that trip and then the, the trip to Denmark in 2009. The, those, those early trips really braced me to know what to prepare for with with how the politics work within what used to be FILA uh, prior to prior to the London Games. Now, after the London Games, re- wrestling was removed from the Olympic program. Uh, what role did you play in helping rectify what uh, might have been like the the ultimate error in the history of the Olympics? This was a really unique situation for me, and this is something I really haven't, I haven't told a whole lot because I was not directly associated with CPAL the uh, Committee for the Preservation of Olympic Wrestling. You know, they had uh, Sheer, you know, Tim Foley really kind of, that's where he kind of found his way into United World Wrestling, was working with that group. And you had USA Wrestling pushing it. You had Richard Immel doing, uh, you know, Google Hangouts about Save the Olympic Wrestling Movement. We really, the Americans really pushed this. But where my role came in is I was an independent. I wasn't working for USA Wrestling anymore. I was working with Amateur Wrestling News and the Open Mat, which at the time were, were a cohesive unit. The you know the Open Mat had the web presence, and we were you know it was kind of the you know I was designing the magazine and the website. Well, Gary Abbott called me, and we had a, a discussion. And Gary Abbott's the director of communications at USA Wrestling. He, he was my boss for two and a half of the three years I was at USA Wrestling. Uh, one of the finest men you'll meet in the sport of wrestling. This guy is a lifer. You, you don't find people that care about the sport of wrestling more than Gary Abbott. And he's like you, he's a Long Island guy. Yep, so yep. Uh, he's, he's been around at it for thir- for 30-something years. And Gary calls me and, and says, you know, there's not really not an international presence when it comes to covering the sport of wrestling. Uh, Fila's website really was, was awful. They didn't have much of anything. Uh, there was a couple results. And what we did was we kind of cloned the Open Map website and it's WordPress. For those of you that are familiar with websites, it, I think WordPress runs like a quarter of the websites on the internet anyway. Uh, at least not the dark web, but anything that we can find on the search engine. <laughs> well, the, uh, I don't know if you meant the dark web, okay? I've been, uh, no, more, no Mr. Robot stuff here. But the what happened is we I took all that information, and I'm, you know, I, I, I am a curator and compiler to the nth degree. I've got RSS feeds from every nation's wrestling website. I've got one from every school's website. So when something's posted, I'm going to get it sooner or later. So we had started posting those international news stories within the open mat. Well, 
Gary says, hey, we need something. So overnight, and when I say overnight, I mean literally within 48 hours, we created internationalwrestlingnews.com or .org. I can't remember the exact domain. And it took all the existing wrestling, the international stories, whether from USA Wrestling from there, and I went through and I pulled uh, a link to every single international result I could find. I was pulling stuff in through Google Translate. Post Basically, in, in 48 hours, I created an international wrestling news site, and that we kept it updated. It was a sister site to the Open Mat, and you know we had a, uh, the logo branding, and I had the opportunity to write columns. And then Bob Condren from CPAL it was kind of brought in as the Philo Media liaison. You know, Bob Condren was with the USOC for umpteen years. Was, you know, he's the guy that coined the term Pony Express with Eric Dickerson and Craig James back when he worked at SMU. I mean, this guy yeah. is a legend when it comes to marketing and promotions, and especially sports information. And Fila had none of this. So uh, then they work with me. I start writing some features for them. So, I mean, I'm having an opportunity to create a, a – it, more or less it was an illusion because there really wasn't anything – super you know being covered on this i was embedding feeds from around the country so it looked like you could come to the site and find out of what was going on around wrestling in the world and i was basically just collecting a lot of resources that were just disgruntled around the internet but it's still put you know if the ioc is looking for a reason well do they have a media presence well boom they find our site oh wow there's here's international stories here's q a with athletes from all around the world i use google translate to do q a's with you know wrestlers from all over the world so uh, the the illusion was, was it a real site? Yeah, was it really? You know, for for the eighteen, you know, for well, I guess it was nine months that we really piled stuff into it. it. We made it look like it was a real relevant news source, and I treated it like such. So, you know, I wrote some columns that the the the, the marketing team or the I guess what's the word the the, the, the public relations team that that Fila hired they did not like. They're like, get rid of him, and they're like. No, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. you know, he, he can do what he wants. I wrote a whole story about trying to redo the brackets and coming up with and, and commentary. But when they changed the rules and then they changed the rules back and it was like we almost had it. So um, my my call during that whole thing was to really write features, create news, create original content and also really develop this international wrestling site that didn't exist one day. And then all of a sudden the next day it's got hundreds of of stories and press releases and results and content. So uh, that really was a, was, was a favor from that was asked, and I, I didn't get paid anything for, the, for that website. That was just something that we did. So uh, the fact that that thing even existed and, and went up for the, for the six to eight months it did and the amount of time that got into it, and I didn't get a dime for that. I'm, I'm, I'm happy we got it back in the game. So the only, only money I was paid for was some of the features that I wrote for, for what was soon to become United World Wrestling. So... Uh, it was kind of weird to, to to get to get a check or a wire transfer from Fila, knowing that uh, <laughs> some of the players had something to do with it. And um, you know, it was that was that was really my role within this is is to try to. I, I was just a busy bee trying to do what I could to to keep it going. And you know, I think that website hopefully had something to do with us. You know, a small piece. I can't take you know enormous credit for it. You know, I wasn't in Buenos Aires cheering around everything. I was watching on the screen. But you know, if if it helped at all, if it helped. One bit. If it, if one person from the IOC committee said, "Oh well, they've got a they've got a they got a worldwide news presence here," then 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 my job was done. Now, uh, how does this dovetail into your uh, appearance in Tashkent at the Worlds? What was that in two thousand fourteen? Yeah, fourteen Worlds. So the with, with the relationship going into Budapest, 
and with with uh, with getting things rolling there, and I was, you know, that's a trip that Fila took care of. Then Fila, I don't think they were even called United World Wrestling yet. It was really close, and they they brought me over, and I stayed with USA Wrestling on there. They basically split the cost for me to go over to Budapest in thirteen. I did the webcast uh, all week long. Uh, was the audio commentary for the webcast, and you know this, this was a couple weeks after we had saved it. So we're talking. There's a high energy in Budapest, and I thought we knocked it out the park in terms of the, the wrestling was out there. I mean, you had you just had a general brotherhood and sisterhood of wrestling at Worlds in Budapest that year. It was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. It was really kind of hard to put put words to, other than maybe. Uh, you're speechless when you see Royce Alger try to get uh, try to turn somebody for money in their underwear. Uh, that's <laughs> entirely. I just wanted to throw Royce under the bus there for a minute, but that was really the the start of kind of being the independent and started to get uh, get some help financially because you know at that time I was still with the, the amateur wrestling news. Open that thing was still rolling, um, st- starting to get a little terse there, but. You know, I, I did some stuff for for both those sites and the international site. I was still updating while I was there. I was making sure I was getting quotes and you know posting the rankings and putting cool flags up. But when we get to Tashkent, uh, this is this is where things get weird because then the, uh, the 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 bottom kind of fell out with my relationship with the Open Man and Amateur Wrestling News because I was caught in the middle. They were both arguing over who owned what, where I was going to get paid, and uh, things of that nature. So this is where Matt Talk was created, and during that time. I was, you know, doing the podcast thing. It really started to blossom, and I'm you know, doing my, you know, just doing podcasts. I'm like, okay, this is the niche that nobody else is doing, and that's the key. You know, Flow Wrestling found their niche with video when nobody was doing it, yep. and they've really cornered the market on it. And then we've seen, you know, we, we've got, I've got the podcast, and then you know, Intermat for years has had the results and the rankings, and you're seeing so many different sites that pull their people in. And when it gets to Tashkent, the question is, is am I going to go? Can we afford it? And then ultimately, USA Wrestling said, "Yeah, we'll 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 give you a place to stay. We'll take care of that." I bought my own ticket, so I bought my flight, which at the time was about oh, that was not a cheap ticket. That was probably an eighteen hundred dollar ticket, and because I you can imagine that uh, you know Minneapolis to Tashkent is not you know <laughs> a nonstop donation or donation destination from Delta here, even though we are a hub. So. Um, we make it work financially. We looked at it more. It's like, yeah, you need, you know, she felt I needed to go. I felt I needed to go. And, you know, I haven't mentioned this yet, but, uh, through the first four months, my daughter was born in 2012. She was in the hospital. Uh, she had a, a couple different, uh, afflictions, TEF, Vactoral. Um, she had a feeding tube for the first two years she was alive. So this is about the two year mark. We're taking the feeding tube out right before I go to Tashkent. So I get over there and then, she has to go back in. They, they, you know, my daughter's sick. I'm over there. And, uh, you know, I'm calling Delta to see if it's open. My daughter's in the hospital for about a week at that point. Like, can I, do I leave? Do I go home? And, uh, while I'm over there, they're like, Hey, you're here. Would you do some interviews for us? And I got to interview the champs and they actually defrayed some of my travel costs, which was really nice. They didn't ask me to be there, but when, when I got there, they utilized me. So, um, you know, kind of mending fences there. Cause uh, you know, there was, there, there are personalities in play when you're dealing with people that have a vested interest in the sport, you know, there's personalities. You both have the same goals in mind, but you have different paths to get there. And sometimes I said it earlier, my ego can, can, you know, that that was a thing, you know, and 
there's other egos involved. And when you step on people's toes, when you're not trying to step on toes and, you know, there, there can be things. And, you know, that was a trip to really help mend some fences with, with United World Wrestling uh, following Budapest. But the, you know, getting to Tashkent and then having to make the decision, do I stay? Do I stay at the World Championships in this? I mean, I, I, I really want to be respectful to my friends from Uzbekistan, you know, Bekzad and, and, and Muzaffar Abdurakmanov and Erkin Tetsmetov. I mean, I know some Uzbeks, and, I, and I've been, you know, you're, you're going to the capital city of their home country. And, you know, diplomatically, you don't want to say it's a bad place, but it was a rough place uh, for an American to be in. And I don't mean I wasn't scared for my life or anything. It just, it was, it did not provide the comforts of home. Mm -hmm. We did not have English. There was no ATMs. There was no credit cards. Cell phone coverage was patchy. So you got some of the things Americans hold dear and you have none of them. And it, it it can make things a little scary. Um, again, not for my life, but it's not a place that's on my list to go back to now back to the situation with Tashkent. So I'm there and I ultimately, it's going to cost $800 to get home. That's even with Delta waiving all the fees, just the difference in fare alone. They're waiving the change fees and all that. Uh, You know, my wife goes, you know what? I can handle it. My parents, you know, this is why we moved back to Minnesota. Her parents, her family's here and it's, it's okay. You know, and then the next day, the very next day I decide to stay, the very next day I run into uh, Gilles Tanoli and he is the, venue manager for Rio 2016. Hmm. So I make that in, I make, make that connection. I'm talking with uh, the guy who's doing the, the Scott, who is his name escapes me right now, who was doing the broadcast for, uh, he's done some international stuff. Usually it's their English language person. Uh, if you don't live in the States, you're hearing this guy on like the Olympic feeds and stuff, but uh, you know him and then uh, you know made that connection and through the Save Olympic Wrestling, got to know uh, Pedro Gamafila from Brazil. He's like the Rich Bender of Brazil. So Rich Bender's executive director of USA Wrestling. He is the uh, the big wig in Brazil. Their their president. He was on the United World Wrestling board. So I uh, got to know him, and then that's that's really where the ball got rolling to to start my journey to get to Brazil. But getting to Tashkent, uh, that was that was kind of a, a late decision. Um, you know, USA Wrestling helped me with putting me in touch with the right travel agent who they work with to get those flights right. And then uh, getting the visa situated, which is always kind of a risk because uh, me and Ben Lowe, we sat at the, uh, at the gate at like 5 a.m. or 5, I don't even know what time it was when we got there, just waiting for somebody to check us in with our visa application. So uh, Ashkent was, 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 was a strange place. Um, you know, I, I would, I would rather go to Baku again than Tashkent. I can say I've been there. I can say I've been to Uzbekistan. Yeah, and I mean, how many Americans can say that? And I, I think that the main takeaway from that story is, uh, and again, it's not even wrestling related. It's just sometimes in life, you have to say, listen, I'm willing to pony up my, my own time, my own money, uh, because if I put myself in this position, I may be able to shine in front of the right people. And that's exactly what happened, because where were you in August of 2016? I was having my 37th birthday at the Olympic Games. <laughs> As the English language and uh, announcer for for uh, Freestyle, Greco, and, and women, correct? Right, and it's funny because uh, Facebook's time hop popped up uh, you know, the last couple of days. I was in Rio a year ago as we record this. Uh, I was in Rio a year ago at the test event. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and even during that, from that Tashkent, 14 to test event 16 the conversations uh, persisted with 
with Pedro, and he goes, hey, what do you want to do? And I initially applied for a broadcast spot. <laughs> like, I wanted, you know, the, the, the in-venue thing, because one of my good friends, Ken Berger, was the English-speaking announcer in London. He was, he's a guy who my mentors. I've known him since I was 16 years old. We were announcing, you know, road races and wrestling tournaments in Virginia together since I was, you know, since I was in my teens. So, you know, I wasn't going to step on his his toes because, you know, he's like, yeah, I've only got a couple, you know, maybe one more of these. I'm like, yeah, that's yours. I didn't even apply for it. And I guess when we both did the world championships in Vegas, uh, the Brazilian said we want JB. And then, you know, Ken ended up down there in the role that I actually applied for. <laughs> Incredible. So he had the venue. Broad- yeah, you know, he was doing it. And, you know, he was broadcasting in English for the in-venue people that these headsets like they do at the NCAA championships where you can hear a feed. Well, uh, Sergio uh, Oliveira was, was speaking Portuguese and they were on the same feed. So, and the thing is neither of them, you know, Ken didn't speak any Portuguese. Sergio didn't speak any English, but they both spoke Spanish. <laughs> oh, okay. So they were conversing and Ken actually, you know, has, a, he overplayed this, this phrase, but it made perfect sense. He goes, we don't, we do speak the same language. And he goes, the language of wrestling. And it was so, it's so, it was so cheesy, but it was so perfect because that is exactly how those two gave a broadcast in English and Portuguese without knowing each other's language and did it to, you know, nine, eight, 9,000 people that were in, in karaoke arena too. So, uh, you know, it's, it's just weird. You know, you're saying coming back to, to the part of that story is like, I was, I didn't even apply to be the PA guy. And I get the, you know, when they heard me do Vegas, I guess that's what would turn the tide. And, uh, you know, I, I guess 2016 was a very good year from a PA announcing perspective. I mean, I had uh, the Olympic trials in Iowa city, uh, the NCAA championships, Madison Square Garden, and the Olympics. I mean, there's not too many people that have had that trifecta. And who found you? How long? How many years now have you done NCAA's? No, this this was just my first year. Okay, last year, uh-huh. first year. So I'll I'll have it this year in St. Louis. I'll have Division Threes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sandy Stevens and I will do Division Threes in lacrosse. I will have the NAIA championships with uh, with Dort Mayab in Topeka uh-huh. uh, the week before the Threes, and then I'll do the Pac 12s this year out at Stanford. So. Uh-huh. Uh, I closed the the college season with the Pac-12s, the NAIs, the D3s, and the D1s. So How, why not the D, why not the D2s? But twos are the same weekend as threes. Oh, okay. So you know, I've I've you know, lacrosse is two hours from here. Uh, twos, I think, are out in uh, twos are in Birmingham again this year, and that's that's where they had that festival. So with two and three on the same weekend. Uh, I'd like to say if it's it's geographical, but I've always I've got a love for Division three wrestling. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I didn't grow up around it, it's it, you know I, I like all levels of wrestling, but the, that D three tournament is something special. Um, and one quick point on and Jason, I can't believe how gracious you've been with your time. Uh, and if you need to go, just let me know. But uh, there are a couple uh, points I want to hit with you before we turn things over. Uh, just on on you you talking about the the English uh, speaker and the Portuguese speaker uh, being able to communicate through the language of wrestling. Uh, you know, just in my experience working on sports diplomacy at the State Department, we look at things like sports and music and art and dance as as universal languages and it's really neat to hear somebody uh that hasn't been prepped with talking points you know clearly get that concept how you know when you step on that mat it doesn't matter what you look like it doesn't matter who your dad is it doesn't matter what religion you are there are there are rules and it's mano y mano or or woman against woman uh now in the last couple cycles and and it's just incredible how something like like our sport just totally levels a playing field and it's a combat sport but at the same time it's one of the ultimate ways to bring people together yeah and it's also amazing that 
the the reverence that people outside of this country have for wrestling. I, I remember a story. I'm, we're at the it was the Art Hotel, O-T-E-L. It was, it was so crappy, it didn't even have an H. <laughs> uh, we were in Istanbul, and it was a t- um, basically European hotels. If you're not, you, first of all, if you if you listen to the show and you don't do a whole lot of international travel, I find it hard to believe if you're listening to sport about sports diplomacy that you haven't done any international <laughs> travel. But, you know, th- this is, you know, you know, we're not talking, you know, Homewood Suites or Holiday Inn Express. I mean, the rooms are tiny. You get you get two single beds max, and you've got a stand up shower and a crapper in the same thing. Typically, that's that's five star resort. You know when you're you know depending on where you're at. You know so <laughs> when you're traveling these places, don't expect super great lodging as opposed to what we're used to in the states. But so I'm I'm in the hotel lobby here in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, a little place dark. You walk up some steps, and it's really dimly lit lobby. And a guy, I'm sitting there talking to, to Dennis Hall, and Jake Fisher had just broken his, his his ankle. He was the world teamer that year, and he's in the lobby. And, you know, his spot ended up going to Andy Bicic, who, you know, eventually would, would win a couple world, world medals. But um, I'm just sitting there talking to Dennis, and some guy just walks up and goes, you're the Dennis Hall world champion, like just <laughs> out of the blue. Uh-huh. He goes, and Dennis, and, you know, he's just kind of a girl, he goes, Crap, people in Stevens Point don't walk up to me and say that, you know? <laughs> Wisconsin. So, you know, that, that's another thing. It's like they, they see people on the street and they're like, you know, Jordan Burroughs gets mobbed in, 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 in Tashkent, you know? it's Or, or, Tur- it, or Tehran. Yeah, Tehran. I mean, he got he got swarmed in London. You know, I mean, people were swarming Raymond Jordan because they thought he was Jordan Burroughs in London. It was, you know, it was interesting. I mean, just the, the thing about wrestling and, and I, you know, it's just the reverence that these country, you know, people look at him as, as hostile. You know, I've, the you know the the Iranians are very passionate about the sport of wrestling. Uh, you might get a bad bad idea about what most of them think by if you read the you know the message boards or or, or Twitter comments because you know every country's got trolls you know, <laughs> you know our best wrestling fans aren't the ones antagonizing everybody on the message boards or on, on social media our best fans are buying tickets in the NCAA championships or Carver Hawkeye and season tickets to their their hometown team so uh, I have a lot of respect for the Iranian fans the Russian fans uh, the Turks the Azerbaijanis the you know. The Canadians, you know, they've got a small but passionate group of, of wrestling fans. So it's uh, the sport of wrestling really has is, is, is taught me a lot about just being able to, you know, it's kind of hard. You know, sometimes people don't realize when you're an American overseas, it's not necessarily going to be, oh, yeah, we love Americans. Yeah, they might. They might not like you right away. You've got to basically prove to them, like, why you're a good person, too. Why, well, you know, just be, wrestling's usually the foot in the door for that. Yeah. Um, uh, switching gears here, uh, you have, you're notorious for collecting box scores and going through the history of the sport and, and compiling, uh, data. Um, you know, in the last decade, 15 years or so, uh, you know, starting with baseball and we're starting to see it now with football and basketball, um, there's, there's been an analytical revolution, do you think that, you know, with all the information that you've collected and box scores and stuff like that, you know, and, and heck, even um, there's the article about Megaludis uh, in Paris this past weekend. And, you know, he's talking about stats for like successful takedown attempts. And, you know, that's something I don't know that you see five, ten years ago. Um, do you think that there's a room for for statistical analysis in the sport or or is it just too fluid and, and it, it doesn't lend itself to that? Oh, there's completely room for it because there's a group called the International Network of Wrestling Researchers that exists. 
and they do this type of thing. Uh, Dr. David Kirby out of Illinois, he was one of the first, actually he was one of that those first junior national champions for for, for then the U.S. Wrestling Federation in 1971. Uh, his son Jacob you know, passed away a couple years ago, but was a Greco-Roman wrestler. Dr. Kirby is in part of that group. Uh, you know, there's a gentleman, David Lopez in Mexico. He sits there, and they, there's a whole group of them, and they look at the internet, and they're focusing on international wrestling. So this, this I don't think we're going to see at the NCAA level anytime soon, although uh, you know, I think there's people out there that analyze. I know Andy Vogel looks at takedown attempts. The guy that runs D3Wrestle.com analyzes the quarterfinals and say what are the most successful takedown attempts were. But the United World Wrestling has, has a group working with them, the International Network of Wrestling Researchers, and they look at... You know, points per period, action points per, you know, what, where, where points are manufactured, are they caution points, are they, you know, fake points, so to speak, are they actual techniques, are they push-outs, they, they analyze it, and this is where they've actually started to be able to show that the rule sets, and, and they're looking at, okay, people aren't just arbitrarily making rule changes because they think there's more scoring, or, you know, there's nothing worse than saying, oh, yeah, we got more points. Yeah, but it was 0-1-1-0-1-0. I mean, you've got binary wrestling, and, it, yep. and everything was just a full draw. But now there is a group, and they are actually using those statistics to help, help you know, you know, where wrestling is using them to make sure that if there's a rule change, they have some statistical analysis, and they look at they try to get a sample size that's big enough. It's not just one tournament. They're looking at all the continentals. They're looking at anything really on the field of calendar because they need that, 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 expanse of nations competing you can't just take fargo and our our biggest tournament and say okay we need we've got a great sample size there but then we have every state competing there but you know you can use that as a sample size versus say you know all your state freestyle tournaments because you know you you never know these these people wrestle the same style you're not necessarily going to see that diversity of attacks that that could create some some points you know some states might be more adept at crotch lifts defending a single leg or a double leg than then say they are in Dagestan. So, you know, one is not the same. It's really cool that, that you know, Dr. Kirby and his his group there, I'm not sure who the actual founder is, but I know he's a part of it. He's an American. And they, they look at statistics in terms of how, how points are measured, how how successful attacks are, and things like that. So that is already in use internationally, at least. Oh, that's fascinating. You, Jason, I had no idea that existed. I'm, I'm going to do a little bit. I'm, I'm going to go down that rabbit hole maybe this weekend. Uh, that that uh, sounds something right up my alley. Um, are you ready uh, for the lightning round? I got a couple quick questions, and then we'll get you out. Right, lightning round. I mean, I can do this all night. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think my wife can hear me. Uh, favorite wrestler of all time? Favorite wrestler of all time, Bruce Baumgartner. Why? I, I discovered wrestling at a time uh, where he was wrestling in 96. Uh, I watched almost every single one of those Olympic finals and those Olympic medal matches from a hospital room where my, my teammate, Mike Green, was... Uh, had had slid off the hood of a car and was in was in a coma. So we watched all the Olympics from hospital waiting room, and, and I was a big guy, and Bruce was a big hulking figure who had you know a big hulking figure and active heavyweight. And then you know a year later, I meet him at the Virginia Duels. He's coaching Edinburgh, and I walk down, I see him, and I'm like, uh, you know, I'm 17 years old with a media credential and. You know, break, breaking. I didn't ask for an autograph or anything, and I knew that. That's why I didn't ask for an autograph. But I went, Mr. Baumgartner. Uh, it's nice to meet you. He goes, oh, You're not a Cornell man, are you? I go, No, <laughs> I'm, I'm from Pocosin High School, right down the street. He goes, John Graham, our team leader, '96. Like, 
the guy in my hometown that founded Virginia Duels was a team leader in 96. So, um, so not much of a lightning there. Bruce Baumgartner is my favorite wrestler of all time, followed closely by Kerry McCoy, who, uh, by the way, great episode with him. Oh, thank you. Thank, yeah, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, too. He's a first class and a Long Island guy to boot. Um, I just don't like highly active heavyweights. So right now, Kyle Snyder and Nick Wazdowski are, are moving up my list as well. Yeah, oh, yeah both outstanding choices. Um, your, uh, your favorite level to cover? I, I think division. Well, I can't. I just got to say NCAA wrestling okay. because I feel that if I just say division one, I'm not doing justice to the hours and hours that I spend digging up results and researching division two, II, division three, the NAIA, the junior colleges, mm-hmm. uh, the NCWA to a lesser extent, the women's college wrestling. I, I I feel like that I need to be at least there needs to be at least one person in this world that cares about every single result in college wrestling <laughs> that is i'm not track wrestling so i'm not paid to do it that way but uh, i just feel like there's stories to be told there's these matches that are important to these parents so i think um the work that i do with in college wrestling and being able to see the d3s and the d1 championships and, and the nai championships uh year in year out makes th- those those the most fun for me to cover and most favorites because it's not necessarily the action or the quality of wrestling, but it's it's the people. You know, when I go to the NAIA championships and I get to hang out with guys like Caleb Schaefer at Great Falls, Casey Rock at Embry Riddle, you know, Nick Mitchell at Grandview, you know, Pete Depole was it was at Baker for a while. Now he's Division Three at McMurray. When when I get to in a vote was at Concordia, Nebraska. Now he's back at Iowa State. To 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 be able to just talk, you know, be one of the be be a be a wrestling person around those guys, and you know. You know, Flow Wrestling's not knocking down their door. Win Magazine's not knocking down their door. You know, I mean, I, I was covering these things because I wanted to cover them. And, you know, when I was at USA Wrestling, thankfully they let me cover the NAIs for two years when I was there. So uh, I love that level, of those levels of wrestling, all levels of wrestling, because those people have been such a big part of my career. Whereas internationally, you know, I get a couple international events a year. It's not like I'm deep-rooted in, in the freestyle scene. I was a terrible freestyling Greco-Roman wrestler. But I, I love that level in terms of its, its, its awesomeness and its quality. But I think the quality time I spend around uh, NCAA and NA, actually can't even say NCAA wrestling, college wrestling in general, is just uh, that, that makes most of, most, of my, uh, most of my clock tick. Um, the uh, the best match you ever saw in your life? You know, it wasn't necessarily, it was like a great match, but it was the match that really, and this actually goes to, this This kind of contradicts my previous answer. It, it was Harry Lester uh-huh. being the ever-loving crap out of Mark Jane in the Fargo finals <laughs> in about 50 seconds in Greco-Roman. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a three, it was a five, it was a three, and then it was another five after the whistle for good measure. <laughs> it showed me that there is a level beyond what I even physically saw. And the fact that I think I saw it my first year in Fargo, might have been 1999, might have been my first year out there. And, you know, these are two hammers from Ohio. Yep. Mark James, a beat St. Ed. St. Ed's guy. Harry Les- CVCA, yep. you know, we know he's, he's, just, he's just nasty good. And it just he just bombed him. Four straight times, and I'm like, this. Did Mark, they just did that. The I knew who Mark Jane was. Yep. I didn't really know who Harry Lester was, and that match really kind of changed. That that really, if if that match doesn't happen, my first or second year in Fargo, I'd have to look it up specifically. But I do think it was 1999. If that doesn't, I don't know if I have that affinity for the way that the sport wrestled like because I just remember walking as a man, and that was early. That was Junior Greco. 
So then I had a whole other, you know, a couple of days of freestyle on top of that. So to me, that is a match that really set things, uh, that, that stood out to me. And uh, that, that, that's definitely one of my greatest, that, that's one that I think about all the time, but I don't actually say it's my favorite match of all time as frequently as I should, because uh, that was up there. I mean, even though it's fresh in mind, Gwiz and Snyder uh, was, oh, you know, heavyweight great match. of legs. Are you kidding me? You know, I, I even said that over the PA system. Heavyweights with a leg pass? Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh man, there's just been so many, you know, so so many good ones. I thought that, I thought that, uh, you know, Anthony Burke and Jesse Riggleman, the Double A State Finals. I think it was in 2003 with two guys that were were state champions. That was a monster. That was a great high school wrestling match. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, if you gave me a list in an hour to think about it, I could probably come up with 300 matches that that could argue, arguably be, you know. You ask me this question a week from now, it might be a different answer, but I definitely will always remember Mark Jane Harry Lester for what it did for my understanding of Greco-Roman, especially in Fargo. And uh, last question, the, the uh, best moment from Rio in 2016? Helen Maroulis. I knew you were going to say that. That was awesome. Was the best wrestling moment. The the moment was the Mongolian. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. The moment was Helen Maroulis because this is this is something that you know you know you, you get to know athletes you, you know when you work at USA Wrestling you get to know them a little more so than, than if you're sitting in the fans or if you're just you're just you know the announcer you get to know them I've known Helen Maroulis since she was, she was in high school and this is one place where I lost it I wrote a blog about this when I was down there as a PA announcer, as a broadcaster, you've got to really put your emotions away. You've got to be unbiased. You've got, unless you're, you know, a home radio station, that's, that's another thing, you know. You know, I've, I've homered it up for the U.S. when I'm on a call for, for Team USA and Uzbekistan or for Turkey or Moscow, wherever I was at. But when you're the, when the PA announcer, you've got, what, 10 words to say. You know, ladies and gentlemen, now the national anthem, you know, I think it's 11, 12 words is what it is. And to try to choke through that. <laughs> just witness something that's never happened before and you are the soundtrack. Hmm. I wasn't worried about my performance in that moment. I was just trying to be able to put words together because what I just witnessed was an amazing feat of human spirit, will and determination. Helen Maroulis's victory over Saori Yoshida is probably up there in, you know, I'm trying to think of this, any moment that I've ever seen with my own eyes that tops it. Rulon Karelin, not because I didn't, I didn't yeah. I watch that on TV. Uh-huh. I didn't watch that. I wasn't 50 feet away from mm-hmm. it. <laughs> you uh-huh, know, sure. watching Brett Metcalf get beat by Darren Caldwell uh-huh. was a pretty crazy moment, but then mm-hmm. I was 15 feet away from that. But yep. just, just the understand the magnitude of what Helen did. And it wasn't just beating, it wasn't beating Sophia Matson in the finals. It wasn't beating, you know, the Nigerian in the finals. It was beating Superwoman. It was beating Yoshida. It was that, that just cemented the fact that this was the single most impressive wrestling feat I have ever witnessed. Uh, although watching Kale win his fourth title sure. in Albany was, you know, for different reasons, for different reasons. They're, di- they're, they're not in the same lane. You know, you know, the one, well, you know, they're both different interstates and in different directions, but they're both super impressive. But uh, Helen, you know, tears are streaming down my face as I'm trying to, to basically keep my shit together. <laughs> so, you know, that was that was the single most powerful moment I've seen from Rio. It was one that affected me, I think, more than any other 
time. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been choked up with performances before. I was choked up when, when Jordan Burroughs won his first goal, when Adeline Gray won her first world championship, when, or her, when, when she won in, in, in Tashkent, a Canadian when I watched online. But to, to, to see those athletes, to know it, you, you get choked up. You know, to, to see a guy from Old Dominion make the NCAA finals, like, you get choked up. But nothing, nothing like Helen Maroulis had ever been done, and she's the first. She's a pioneer. Nobody can ever say that uh, they were the first to do that other than her. So that's one thing that Rio will remember for, Helen and the Mongolians. You know, and it, that, that's pretty good, too. I, I was going to say that if you isolated a camera on Yoshida and Helen and, and had no context, it really just showed kind of humanity and, and and human emotion at, at its finest because you wouldn't be able to tell me who won and who lost that match from their they, they were both you know just they were just so overly emotional and crying because they, they you could tell the the respect they had for one another and and the respect for the war that they just had on the mat uh was a huge part of of what that moment meant too that that was a really really cool uh moment to watch even from here in uh, fairfax yeah, and, and and one thing I wanted to do here because a lot of people, and I wanted to make sure. I mean, people knew I was probably an American based on my tone, my, you know, and I didn't feel like I gave Helen any any bigger push than I did any other Olympic champion on the top of that podium, and that was one thing I was I was cognizant of. One thing I also I wanted to make sure though is I showed respect to Yoshida because. Mm-hmm. As she was, you know, she's mobbed by the media. And she's, you know, the Japanese media. I mean, she is standing there, taking it, and she is just. I mean, she's superwoman for dealing with this. I mean, most everybody would just want to get out of there, mm-hmm. you know, before you even go to the mix zone. She's standing out there five minutes. There's pictures. There's media. There. She's sitting there and she's bowing. She's crying her eyes out. And as she makes the turn towards the the back tunnel, and Helen had finished her victory lap, and I wanted to make sure Helen was off the mat when this happened and I, I'm assuming that Yoshida's done. I, I, I can't, I, you know, it's probably a, a, it's kind of hard to assume at the time, but I wanted to make sure that she got her respect mm-hmm. because as she turns the corner, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, a big, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I wanted to direct their attention to a three time Olympic champion, a four time Olympic medalist. One of the greatest our sport has ever seen Ladies and gentlemen, Japan's Saori Yoshida, and she got a little, you know, ovation after that. And I wanted to make sure she got that moment, not because I wanted to sound cool, but because she deserved some type of respect for what she had done for women's wrestling and what she'd done for women's wrestling, not just in Japan, but for around the world. I mean, Helen grew up wanting to beat Yoshida. I mean, that's how big of an icon she is for for an entire sport. It, It transcends borders, too, so... I really wanted to make sure that, that the people in that building knew knew who Sayori Yoshida was, and and not just that. Oh well, yeah, she was. She, she lost that match to the American. That's a that's a wonderful place to end on. I, I can't think of a better way to wrap things up. Uh, Jason Bryant will be coming to a, a a high level college wrestling tournament near you in the in the coming weeks, um, and, and doing the the Chuckle Hut in Indianapolis too. You you got a couple comedy gigs in there also, Jason, or any, anything else? Well, you'd Bone in Des Moines with Greg Warren and Wesley West Wesley opening up and be sure to see us at that. No, no, I, I don't do any stand up. Um, I've thought about it, but I'm really just not that funny. Uh, I mean, I laugh at my own jokes, so it's, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I, sit up, 
I, I do I do podcasts and, and make fun of my wife and kid on the show. So I mean, it's, it's just fun. When wait, what's um, George Mason University called? Oh, 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 yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, Fairfax State Community. <laughs> that, that, that gets me every this, time. This, this is not wrestling. I love Joe Russell, and I'll give him the Patriots wrestling, George Mason Patriots wrestling, but growing up, in, you know, as an Old Dominion person, uh, VCU and George Mason get zero love for me in anything. Uh, so, Virginia Convicts and Violent Crime University, yeah, you can go do your thing, and Fairfax State Community College, you can go up there and, and hang out in your traffic, so... uh We'll just us down here at, at, at Out Drink You. We'll just chill out. And be happy. Uh, the, the website is Matt Talk Online. And is there any sponsors you want to plug? You want to thank your friends at Avis or anything like that? Oh yeah, well Avis can suck it. Uh, I'd like <laughs> to thank uh, Fretwell and the crew at Compound Wrestling. They provided me with uh, with support in terms of some of the gear that I provide the patrons of my group. And I'm not a membership. I don't have a membership site. What I do have is a team membership, so to speak, where if you want to be part of my, the, the team and you contribute to help, uh, basically get me to finance these shows. Some are school finance, but some of them are still on my own dime, like the, uh, the statistical research project that I'm working on with the Almanac. Uh, you know, you have certain levels of giving. So, uh, what Cliff's company has done is, you know, uh, they get some advertising space on the website and, and branding on the shows and, you know, they do some social media with it, but, um, you know, I've known Cliff a long time. We met at the turf in Fargo, um, 1999, 2000. And, you know, they've been a great gear sponsor. They've, they've, they've provided this really soft, uh, t-shirts with the Matt talk logo around there. And, you know, if you're a patron at a certain level, you get, uh, you get one of those, you get a hat, I'm working on draft glasses. So I guess a glass with a twist, they're not a sponsor, but they're a company that I've used to get my, my draft glasses and my media association awards. And, uh, you know, basically all the patrons of the Mad Talk Podcast Network. Uh, there's, I don't really have any. You know, hey, if you're a sponsor out there and you're willing, hey, I've got, I've got sponsor space, folks, because uh, I got 19 shows on the network. About 10 of them you can, you can get space on. So, uh, hey, if you're, you're looking to uh, throw some sponsorship on, uh, on a podcast medium, I got, I know a guy who might be interested. Oh, Jason Bryant, th- you were great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. For Jason Bryant, I'm Morgan O'Brien saying thank you for listening to the Diplosport Podcast. If you have the opportunity, please go ahead and follow us on social media at Diplosport on Facebook and Twitter. And we always welcome you to subscribe to us via iTunes. And if you want to, go ahead and leave us feedback. Good feedback and a lot of subscriptions helps us continue to get great guests like Jason Bryant.